0: Revelation chapter two, to the church of Thyatira. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your works, your love and faith and service and patient endurance, and that your latter works succeed first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and I will give to each of you according to your works. But to the rest of you in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. Only hold fast to what you have until I come. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the
1: churches. Good afternoon. So we're going through the book of Revelation as a church right now. Uh, and if you are kind of new-ish or maybe just joining us for the first weekend, uh, what we've been saying is that this book, the book of Revelation, is often misunderstood. It's less actually about what, the wor- what when the world is going to end, and it's actually about more, more about what God is doing here and now, sort of behind the scenes, the book of Revelation, that, that word revelation comes from the Greek word apocalypsis, which literally means unveiling. And so when we read the book of Revelation, what's happening is God is unveiling, sort of revealing to us how he's really at work behind the scenes, how he really holds the victory and the implications of. Uh, that, that victory has for us as his people. And so, uh, we're, we're right now in a section of that book where Jesus is addressing seven different churches, uh, throughout the ancient Near East in the early church. And so this is happening after Jesus ascended, after his resurrection, after he kind of trained his disciples on, in the work further of pastoring and church planting. And then he went to ascend to the right hand of God. And here in Revelation 2 and 3, he is addressing the apostle John and saying, hey, I want you to write these seven letters to these seven different churches. I have a word for them some things that I want to commend them in, but also some things that I want to sort of challenge them in. Each church has its own set of strengths, but also its own set of challenges that they need to grow in if they are going to be considered a faithful church in the end, a church that makes a difference, a church that's going to be a beacon of wholeness in a world that is broken and fractured see, that aspect of the church of Jesus Christ is something that still holds true for us today. We want our churches, we want this church, we want King's Cross Church to be a church that's healthy, a church that pursues wholeness, in the midst of a world that is broken and fractured. And so by looking at these passages in Revelation 2 and 3, we're sort of reading the mail of these churches to see what Jesus has to say to them. And then we hope to learn something through Jesus' word to them about what it means for us today to be a healthy and whole church. And my prayer has been that it maybe challenges you personally too on what it means to be a healthy and whole Christian. So let me pray for us, and then we'll go ahead and start uh, talking about this letter to Thyatira. Uh, God, I am just so grateful for your word. I'm grateful for this church family. I'm grateful for, for every man, woman, and child that you have brought here to this place in order to worship you, King Jesus. Though our faith is old and ancient, we encounter you in a fresh way when we gather as your people to be formed by your word, to be nourished by your meal and to be just built up and encouraged through our fellowship together. And so, Holy Spirit, would you just do what only you can do? Mold us more into the image of Christ through the rest of our time together. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now, this afternoon, we're, we're finding ourselves looking at the church in Thyatira, the church in Thyatira, now this letter to the church in Thyatira is, if, if you just kind of scan the next two pages, you'll notice it's actually longer than all the other letters. And it can actually be more confusing, not just because of its length, but because of the imagery that's used in it. Like one of the most striking things about this particular letter to this particular church is that the sin that is addressed uh, here in this to this church is a sin that is addressed like again and again and again in the Bible more than most other sins, but it's a sin that we actually hardly acknowledge today. Even though the Bible addresses it again and again and again, we tend to sort of overlook this sin. And why is it that we overlook it? I think it's because we assume that the sin is not a real problem for us today. We think like, oh, I get why they struggled with that in the first century in that sort of cultural context, but this isn't something that we really struggle with today. It's not really relevant for us or to us in our context. It can only happen in a time and and culture that's, that's distant, that's different than our own. So what is the sin that we're gonna talk about? It's the sin of idolatry, the sin of idolatry. Now, if you were to search the scriptures, you're going to find it hard. It's going to be hard for you to, to find a sin that is treated more seriously, that is talked about more grievously than idolatry. When you read the scriptures, what you see is that actually every sin seems to flow from this one. Martin Luther made the great point that it, 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 the first two commandments, uh, to love God and to make no idols, like in his, in his image, uh, uh, to, to worship no, no one other than him, like to the first uh, two, two commandments are all about idolatry, and every other commandment actually flows out of that one. In other words, if you're gonna break any of the commandments three through 10, you gotta break commandments one and two first. Every sin flows from this one. It is the ultimate expression of unfaithfulness to God. If the number of times that a sin is mentioned tells us anything about how aware we should be of that sin, then idolatry would be at the top of this list, mentioned more than any other. And so, that sort of begs the question, right? Like, well, what is it? What is idolatry, right? Because we're middle-class Americans in 2021, we don't really have a category for idolatry, right? Right? Like when we hear that word, idolatry, we think of like this gold chiseled calf in, in the middle of the ancient deserts. Or maybe it stirs up for us images of Indiana Jones in the Temple of Doom or Aladdin in the Cave of Wonders with that monkey idol holding this, this, this tempting ruby, right? That's what we think of when we think idol, idolatry. It's the thought of those things. The thought of those things seem like silly to us, right? Like being so enamored by an an idol like that, it seems silly to us, but I think the kind of idolatry that we actually get wrapped up in today is far sillier and way more tragic. So let's define it at the very base level, at its very foundation. Idolatry is when you value something more than you value God. Idolatry is when you value something more than you value God. And as a result, that something or someone basically turns into your functional God. The thing that you turn to for purpose and meaning. The thing that you turn to to tell you what does it mean to be fully alive? The thing that you turn to to learn, what does it mean for, for me to live a life of purpose? What on earth am I here for? Martin Luther, again, that, the key figure of the Protestant Reformation, he, he pointed out in his larger catechism, he says, whatever your heart clings to and relies on, that is your God. Whatever it is that you find your heart clinging to, leaning on, relying on, that thing becomes your functional God. It becomes an idol to you. It becomes the thing that you love, the thing that you rely on, the thing that you live for above and beyond everything else. And that idol can be carved out of wood. It can be shaped out of gold, it can be a religious relic in, in in a cathedral, or it can be a star in the heavens. But in our cultural context today, specifically in the West, our idols tend to be things that are more culturally acceptable. Matt Chandler, the president of our church planning network and pastor out of the Dallas-Fort Worth area, he points out that our idols are often just good things that we've turned into ultimate things. And so like a person or a hobby, a pursuit, a possession, a status, all of those things, if they become the thing that that you love more than anything, if they become the sort of thing that you rely on or lean on more than anything, if they become the thing that you live for above everything else, then that thing becomes your idol. And if you're not loving, trusting, and serving God above all else, then whatever object of your devotion that you're turning to instead is the source of your idolatry. And here's what makes this particular sin so deadly and tragic is that its temptation is everywhere. Its temptation is everywhere. Every day, in every place, in every context we find ourselves in, we're being tempted to love, rely on, and live for other things other than the God who made us, who knows us who loves us like no other and who's redeemed us by the blood of his son. I mean, the temptation to the sin is everywhere and it's a common vulnerability to church-going people just like us, not just natives of some like jungle or some ancient context. No, it's something that church-going people just like us are tempted with. Look at verse 18 in our text, the first verse. Jesus says to the angel or the messenger of the church in Thyatira, write, the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. That's how he addresses, or that's how he introduces himself to Thyatira, the church there. Now, it'll be helpful for you to know some Uh, historical background to this city if we want to understand uh, the sin of idolatry that they find themselves in, this church, right? So Thyatira was a historic union town, right? The culture was actually formed by commercial trade, and by manufacturing industries. Two of the most common trades there were, were metalworking, uh, particularly bronze. And so when Jesus talks about himself as being one with a feet of bronze, uh, like, or feet like burnished bronze, that, that, that would have that hit uh, for them. That would have meant something to them. Uh, another common trade was textiles. If you're familiar with the background of the, uh, the church at Philippi, uh, there's a, a, a woman uh, by the name of Lydia who in the Christian church was kind of the, the, the first, like, hashtag girl boss, right? Like, she owned a, a business. She owned this textile empire uh, that she got all of her her, her, her purple cloth uh, and the threads from that from Thyatira. That was her background. Now, each industry in Thyatira was actually dominated by these trade guilds, which are kind of like the unions that we have today, Um except a little bit on steroids, because these trade guilds had so much power and influence and impact on how the city was run, all right? And each guild had its own sort of patron god or goddess uh, that, that if you were a part of that guild, you were expected to worship. You were expected to pay homage to that god or goddess, you're also expected to attend the guild festivals that they'd have every now and then, which often included eating food and meat that was sacrificed to the patron god of that trade. And after that party would end, you were kind of sort of expected to, to, to hook up with the, with the priest uh, or the priestess of the guild as, an act of, as a further act of worship, um, And I use that term hookup in like the nastiest sense of that phrase, right? So the gnawing question then is, what does a Christian do in a situation like that? What does a Christian who works in an industry run by these guilds that are performing these these idolatrous acts of worship, what are you to do in a situation like that? Do you just not show up to the party uh, and get judged for that? Do you, do you leave early? Do you kind of just like go on with the motions? Just like, yeah, you know, I'm just, I'm gonna do a little bit of this, but you know, God knows my heart. I mean, this isn't a, a hypothetical letter or a hypothetical situation that Jesus is speaking into. This was the Christians in Thyatira. This was their real life experience as believers in that town. And these are the same kinds of questions that we find ourselves asking today. Do I show up to these parties? Do I hang out with those people? Do I, what does that look like if I do? Like, do I, do I just leave early if things get weird? Do I go with the motions so I don't cause a stir or upset anybody? To what extent can I take part in just the expectations of my culture without compromising on my growth in Christ? Regardless of your trade or your profession or your background or your hobbies, your location or your recreation, we find ourselves asking these kinds of questions. Christian doctors and Christian teachers have to ask these sorts of questions in their profession. Christian salesmen and Christian tradesmen have to ask these questions when they're at work and amongst their colleagues. Christian athletes and students. When you're hanging out as a Christian amongst your neighbors, like these are the kinds of things that we find ourselves asking about. And on the one hand... As followers of Jesus, we know, like, we cannot deny the faith. Man, when we say Jesus is Lord, we mean that in the full sense of that word. He is our Lord. We belong to him. On the one hand, we can't deny the faith. But on the other hand, we can't deny the presence of the culture we find ourselves in and the p- pressures that are often attached because of that. And we find that the cause of Christ isn't served when we deny him. We kind of we know that really intrinsically. Really, e- it's easy to jump to that conclusion, right? Like the cause of Christ isn't served if I deny him before others. But it's also not served when Christians look like, this irrelevant social club that's just disengaged from the world. And so what's the answer? How do we live? How do we respond to these social situations? I want you to go back to verse 18 and see the way that Jesus introduces himself here. He's sort of setting the stage by how he introduces himself for the words he's about to share with them. And he says in the second half of verse 18, he says, you know, these words are the words of the Son of God, who calls himself the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Now that title, Son of God, means, of course, that he's the Son of God. There's also more significance to this title that we'll actually get at a little bit later. But he he also says that, that he has eyes of blazing fire. Which again, if you remember when we started this series, um, it's, it, this doesn't mean that, that Jesus is walking around looking like a, like a four-year-old drew him up, right? Like this is metaphorical, poetic imagery that is meant to give us, uh, uh, to, to illustrate for us a particular truth about who the Son of Man or the Son of God is. And as one with eyes of blazing fire, that's a way of telling us, no, look, Jesus is the one who sees all things. Fire, blazing fire, purifies. It it burns away what is worthless, and it purifies and strengthens and fortifies what is beautiful and worth keeping. And so Jesus has eyes to see in each church, in all our lives, what is real and genuine and trustworthy, but also what is counterfeit, what's fake, what won't ultimately last in the end. And so Jesus, in introducing himself, he calls himself the son of God, but also the one with eyes of blazing fire, the one who sees all things and knows all things. And what he's about to say to them is in light of that truth, and he's also the one whose feet are like burnished bronze, which is an Old Testament image, having feet of bronze, of of basically uh, being the one who is to judge. It's an image of judgment. This is a way of Jesus pointing out that he's the one who tramples everything in his path that doesn't belong there. So what, are these, what do these phrases tell us? This tells us that the holiness of Jesus and all of his majesty and all of his beauty and all of his purity as the true source of all that is true, good, and beautiful, this Jesus, the holiness of Jesus is manifested in his assessment of this church. If they want any hope, for moving forward, if they want any hope for lasting to the end, they need to meet the searching gaze of his fiery eyes and to know with confidence that they can stand before him. This made me think of my kids this week. Like I... I know when my kids are listening and I know like they, they get what I'm saying when they can like look me in the eyes and keep looking me in the eyes, right? Like they like look at me back. When they start like looking everywhere else, it's like, ah, oh, you're not listening, right? Like you, you don't get what was just said. But when Jesus looks out with his fiery eyes, we want to be able to look back into his and to know with confidence that we can stand rather than cower away because of some unfaithfulness that we're marked by. And so this leads us now into the main content of his address. First, he gets into Thyatira's past faithfulness. Thyatira's past faithfulness. Look at verse 19 when Jesus says to them, "'I know your works.'" I know your love and faith and service and patient endurance and that your your ladder works. In other words, the stuff that you're, you, you've done later on uh, is exceeding the first. In other words, you guys are more faithful now than you were when you first started. Right? And I, I just, I still love just how Jesus just intimately knows every church. He says to them, look, I see what you're doing. These are Eyes of blazing fire are not just terrifying. They can also be vindicating. Jesus is saying to them, look, I know what you're doing. I know your works. I know your love. I know your service. You're working hard. You're not giving up. I'm proud of you. I do see that. Love, faith, servant, service, patient endurance. These are the works that Jesus knows, seeds, and applauds in them. If you actually like look at it, take a close look at that list you'll notice that there's a relationship between these words right love true love leads to service right if you truly love somebody you're going to serve them outwardly faith true faith leads to endurance and perseverance through trials that's the outward expression of that let there not be light. <laughs> This is not a congregation. This is not a congregation that talked a big talk but actually didn't live out their faith. This, they, they were the real deal at one point. They had a type of love that served and a type of faith that endured. And here Jesus says to them, your latter works, they exceed the first, which is a way of him saying like, man, you guys are just getting started. I see a bright future for you. Things, Your best days are ahead. Ephesus, the first church that we looked at at the beginning of chapter two, if you remember, they, they sort of regressed in their faith. Jesus said to them, like, hey, I see all these great things that you've do, you're doing, but you know what? Like, you, you've forgotten your first love. You need to go back to that. Thyatira, on the other hand, they seem to be progressing in faithfulness. And it's at that point that Jesus transitions to speak about areas that he sees compromise among them. Number two, Thyatira's present compromise. We see it introduced in verses 20 and 21 when Jesus says to them, but I have this against you that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Now, now what's with this mention of Jezebel? Who who is this Jezebel? It's actually not that there was an actual woman named Jezebel stirring up trouble in this church. In the same way that Pergamum, the, the, the church that we talked about last week, was challenged for accepting a teacher who was like Balaam. You remember that from the Old Testament? This church is being challenged for listening to a prophetess who was like Jezebel, who is a known figure of the Old Testament and so so Jesus is calling this woman amongst them, Jezebel, as sort of a nickname for her so that they, they really like if they know their old Testaments they kind of get will get the idea of of, of, of the kind of influence she's having amongst them. Jezebel, if you know her story, which we read about in First and Second Kings, she was a domineering woman who was married to a weak, an apathetic man by the name of Ahab. Ahab was the seventh king of Israel, and he was not much to brag about. And Jezebel, his wife, was a worshiper of Baal, who, in case you didn't know, is a false god, right? Like, Baal is not Yahweh, the god of the Bible, the god of the Israelites. Baal was a different god. He was a god of the Phoenicians and the Canaanites. And so she, Jezebel, was a worshiper of Baal, a false god, and she also convinced her husband, the king of Israel, to worship Baal with her. And under both their leadership, The worship of false gods like Baal and others started creeping into Israel. And the worship of idols, the worship of false gods, like like stuck with the nation of Israel for, for generations. So Jezebel was responsible for getting the worship of false gods creeping into God's covenant community. And she was relentless with this. Like She personally supported over like 800 or 850 different, different prophets, false prophets, while trying to hunt down and kill all of the true prophets of God. In 2 Kings chapter 9, it says that she was known for idolatry and witchcraft and whoring God's people to the false gods of the Phoenicians. And so here's Jesus, like a thousand years later, dropping her name while calling out Thyatira for tolerating the teachings of this particular woman in their church. What's happening is that the same spirit, the spirit of Jezebel, is alive in Thyatira. And this Jezebel is preaching to this church that Christianity is fully compatible with these pagan practices. She's teaching that Christianity is fully compatible with the zeitgeist of the age. She's saying like, hey, what's the big deal? right? You're not being asked to renounce your faith in Jesus, are you? No, so don't be so narrow. Don't be so exclusive. Just relax a little bit. A little idolatry won't hurt you. And along the way, the church in Thyatira is like, She kind of makes sense. She's actually making a lot of sense. Like, we we don't want to be seen as narrow. We don't want to be seen as unloving. We we want to be as inviting and hospitable as as possible. And so the next thing you know, they've abandoned their convictions at the table of tolerance. And so what does this story of Jezebel have to do with idolatry? I mean, other than the fact that they're like straight up participating in like the outward worship of false gods. It's because anytime we value something more highly than we value God, we end up suppressing wonderful truths about God's nature and character. That's what happens when we partake in idolatry. Anytime that we value something else or someone else higher than we value God and what he's revealed about himself, what we end up doing is suppressing wonderful truths, beautiful truths, helpful truths about who God is, his nature and his character. For example, if my desire is to live if my desire like to live in a certain neighborhood is higher up in my valuing and celebrating and fighting worth in the God who loves me just as I am, then any truth about God that would make that thing fall down, like that neighborhood fall down a few notches in importance and value for me, I'm going to choose to ignore and suppress. And so we say things like, man, if if God is going to take this thing that I really love away from me, then he can't be really good. Or if God's word says to avoid something that I really love and I don't want to be taken away from me, then I probably don't really understand his word. Like, it probably really says something else. Now, the, the reason that we, we want to break it down like this is because when we get to the source of our impulses, then we get to see that behind every sin problem is a worship problem. In other words, behind every sin problem is an idolatry problem. You might not be like swinging with the coworkers after at the staff party to pay homage to the patron saint of widget sales or whatever it is that you do, but you probably worship things like comfort, approval, control, power, more than you'd like to admit. The things that the Reformed scholar uh, Dick Keyes calls source idols, right? Dick Keyes, a lot of the work uh, and writing that he's done on on idolatry has been really helpful to influence guys like like Tim Keller and David Powelson and and Matt Chandler and he talks about the difference between source idols and, and surface idols. A lot of times when we think about, like, like if we're willing to concede to the fact that like idolatry is, is more than, than like, uh, uh, you know, Indiana Jones type, type stuff, but it's actually a matter of, of the heart, then a lot of times we're, we're willing to, to admit that fact, but then we'll call things like food idolatry or image or money. Or a job, like ah, I really idolize my job or I idolize my family, right? Like I, I feel like I have no worth or value unless my family's happy all the time and I'm the one making them happy. But what Keys talks about is that underneath all those surface idols, we have deeper, more transcendent source idols, like comfort, approval, control, or power. Like your your worship of comfort might manifest itself in the idol of food or of drink or of materialism. But deep down, they say you're not finding comfort, approval, satisfaction, humility before the throne of the God who made you and loves you and saved you. This is the reason John Calvin says that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. In other words, because we're always seeking comfort, approval, control, power, oftentimes more than we're seeking to find value in in, in God. Our hearts are constantly finding and creating these idols, these, these false gods, these functional gods that we end up worshiping instead of the real God. And the thing about idolatry and, 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 and the reason that God hates it so much is because it gets to the core. It's, it's, an, it's an enemy of the core of our relationship with God as his people. Look at this verse in Exodus chapter 34, verse 14. While laying out the commandments, it says, you shall worship no other God for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. You see, so the reason that God hates idolatry is because he's a jealous God. Now, did you know that? Did you know that God is described in the Bible as a jealous God? You ever notice when you read the scriptures, particularly in the Old Testament, that God is described as jealous again and again? That kind of hits weird, right? We think of jealousy as a bad thing, right? Like why is it that something that's a vice for us considered considered a virtue for him? It's because you see when God is jealous, his jealousy is not a sinful jealousy. No, when the Bible says that God is jealous for us, that he's jealous after us, it's talking about how the Bible says that we are the prize of God, the bride of Christ. The Bible says that we are the bride of Christ and that Christ is our bridegroom. He's the one who loves us passionately. He's the one who serves us willingly. He's the one who protects us valiantly. And he's the one who leads us faithfully. The reason that there's something in us that can know the difference between a good husband and a bad husband is because it's hardwired into into our being and into our hearts and our minds to know that that there is an archetype there is a perfect picture of a perfect husband that all men fall short of Christ is that picture So when the Bible talks about God's jealousy, it's not a sinful jealousy, but a righteous one. That word illustrates how he wants to protect the intimacy that is found in only his covenant relationship with his people. See, that's why God hates idolatry. That's why he calls it out again and again and again all throughout the Bible. It is an adulterous intrusion on the covenant that he has with his people. Idolatry is a full-throttled attack on the church's exclusive love that we should have for our God. This is why Jesus calls out again and again in the gospels, he calls out his generation as an adulterous and sinful generation for not believing that he is the Messiah. This is why James says, look at this in James chapter four, he says, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. James calls that adultery. It's like spiritual adultery. And so by calling out the idolatry at Thyatira, Jesus is calling out their, not just physical outward adultery, but their spiritual adultery too. Maybe they were doing these things because they coveted approval. Or maybe they coveted, above all things, comfort. They didn't want to be put in an uncomfortable situation. Maybe it's it's power or influence. They don't want to offend the wrong people. And so Jesus calls them out on not just their outward adultery, but their spiritual adultery. He's looking to topple down not only the, the surface idols, but the source idols underneath. This is why Jesus addresses their sin by using the language of unfaithfulness. Read verse 22 and 23 when he says, Behold, I will throw her, I will throw Jezebel onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works, and I will strike her children dead. Kind of gnarly. Jesus is saying here, Look, I'm gonna judge this Jezebel, this false prophetess for leading you into this compromise, for leading you into idolatry. This is why, again, he's called the one with the bronze feet that we saw in verse 18. He's the righteous Judd who's gonna undo all that is evil and undo all that stands to threaten his people. Bronze is heavy. It crushes. This is a picture of the great judgment that Jesus is coming to bring. And don't miss the irony here that Jezebel, who's luring Christians onto the bed of sin, he says, will be cast onto the bed of suffering. And I know that like language sometimes can be off-putting and sound harsh. But again, I want you to think of just the jealous love that he has for his people. He wants nothing to get in the way of that love. He just loves so much. And he knows that by them loving anything else, leaning on, serving, and loving, valuing anything other than the God who loves them and made them, will ultimately lead them to destruction, will ultimately be their undoing. Notice how the language he used in verse 20, he calls them servants. In verse 22, he refers to those who commit adultery. And then here in verse 23, he talks about uh, the children of Jezebel. These are all words and phrases that are, he's using for the same group of people. Basically, anybody who's following Jezebel's lies, anybody who's falling, any, falling prey to her teaching. Jesus is saying, look, if you're guilty of idolatry, then you will have the same fate as her. Man, I want you to imagine that you're guilty of that idolatry and you're receiving this letter. That would be jarring. That would wake you up, right? So then, there's probably some asking the question, then what hope is there? What hope is there for us? What hope is there for them? Like how can one escape that judgment? The Bible teaches that the only thing that can prevent this judgment is repentance, turning from idolatry. Now quickly, there's something unique I want you to see about this letter so far. That, that Jesus not only addresses those who have compromised, but he addresses those at this church who are among those people who compromise, but maybe themselves haven't gone astray yet. We, we read his address to them in verse 24. He says, but to the rest of you in Thyatira, to those of you who do not hold this teaching, who have not learned what some call the deep things of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden. I want you to notice that Jesus calls this idolatry, he calls it for what it is. He calls it satanic, dem- demonic, deep things of Satan. And then he goes on in verse 25 to, to tell them, only hold fast to what you have until I come. In other words, don't fall into idolatry. I know the pressure is great. I know it makes you uncomfortable. I know you might... You might lose some of your footing in the town. But man, just just hold fast. Don't fall into idolatry. But instead, hold on to, he says, what you do have. Now, how do we do this? How do we hold on to what we do have? What does he mean by that? How do we maintain in spiritual faithfulness rather than falling into spiritual adultery? Man, we just, we do that? by reading the word, by reading the scriptures and cherishing the gospel of grace. We do this by immersing ourselves in the word. You don't need to be an expert in apologetics and different cults. You don't need to have a degree in theology. No, you just need to be a people of the word. You'll need supernatural means like the inerrant word of God to fight a supernatural enemy, like the spirit of Jezebel. Like Satan's not out there saying, hey, if you want to like check out this sweet idolatry thing, then just fill out this form, right? Go to my website. Like, no, he's sneakier than that. He's more cunning than that. Bible says he often comes to us looking like an angel of light. In other words, he comes to us in things that look beautiful and attractive or things that sound beautiful and attractive. Jezebel was popular. The woman that he nicknames Jezebel, she was popular. Her teaching was popular. She claimed to speak on God's behalf, and she did it with such umph and authority that people were like, yeah, that makes sense. See, sometimes it comes from within, like it did with Thyatira. We shouldn't be naive to think that it won't come to us in a similar way. often the temptation to idolatry, spiritual adultery, doesn't just come to us when we're hanging out with coworkers or friends or neighbors who have different convictions and values that we do, that we still love and want to be around. Like Sometimes it comes up in situations like that, but often it comes to us through like a Christian bestseller book list. It comes to us through primetime news. It comes sometimes through Christian talk shows. The error won't always be obvious to us, it might be subtle. And it might be so subtle that only minds that have been renewed by the word, as Romans 12 says, will be able to discern the deception. You've probably heard that the way that they, that they, they teach uh, and train um, like bank experts to determine what a counterfeit bill looks like is by making sure that they're so familiar with the real thing, that they can pick up a counterfeit like that. And so this leads us now to the possible hope that Thyatira has. Jesus always ends each letter with a call to repentance with the possibility of hope. What is Thyatira's possible hope? He introduces it in verses 26 and 27, when he says, to the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. In other words, to the one who repents, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself has received authority from my father. Jesus is saying, look, those of you who endure to the end, who repent in faithfulness, you're gonna stand with me at the end of all time. You're gonna stand with me as I reign, as I usher in the new kingdom, as it's fully ushered in, as it's fully set up. And the words that he's using here point to Uh, Psalm 2. They're actually, he's paraphrasing Psalm number 2. And in Psalm 2, if you're familiar with it, the king is referred to as God's son. You see, Psalm 2 would be read every time a new king of Israel was installed. And he's referred to as the son of God. Now, why is that significant? It's because this is what Jesus referred to himself as earlier. Remember, I told you we'd come back to that. And so this is Jesus' sort of clever way of telling his audience in Thyatira that he is the fulfillment of Psalm 2. He's not just a king, he's the king of all kings. He's the king of all kings. And the rod of iron that we read about in verse 27, which is often a picture of kingly rule, but also what's used here to break pots into pieces. The pottery guild would know that image super well. And so this is Jesus' way of saying that one day he's going to shatter his enemies. Everyone who overcomes idolatry through faith in Jesus will be spared of that Shattering. And instead, Jesus will be shattered in their place. He would be the one to save them from their sins. He's not just the king of all kings. He's the king who wore a crown that was fashioned out of thorns, pressed into, embedded into his scalp, till he was dripping blood. And through the wicked acts of men, he received the righteous wrath of God in our place. He hung there in our place. He hung there for our sins. So that those who repent and believe by faith might have everlasting life with him. He says to these faithful ones in verse 28 I will give him or her the morning star. What does that mean? In Numbers chapter 24, there's a prophecy that says that a star is going to rise in the morning that's going to bring the end of all darkness and usher in the kingdom of light. The very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, Jesus names himself as the morning star. And so when Jesus says that, look, you faithful ones who repent and believe, You will get the morning star. When he says that, he's promising the gift of himself. He's saying to these faithful ones, instead of being shattered by the rod of iron, my body is going to be shattered in your place. I'm the one who came to save you from your sins. I'm the groom who has loved you passionately and will serve you faithfully to the end. He's promising them. That in a way greater than they have ever known in this life, there will one day be uninterrupted, unmitigated, unfiltered intimacy between Jesus and his bride, the church. That is the gift for those who refuse to partake in spiritual adultery or idolatry. So I close by asking you to consider the question, what is it that you love, rely on, or live for above everything else? What is the one thing, what is the collection of things that you love, rely on, and live for above everything? Everything else, the one thing that you say, unless I have this, unless this changes, unless my situation looks like this, then I have no value, I have no worth, I have no meaning. What is the thing that you love and rely on and live for and long for above everything else? Is that thing Jesus? And if not, receive his invitation to run to him, to repent and believe, knowing that with him all you find are open arms and grace, hope, and love everlasting. Amen.